This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's program, we're going to talk about how youth activism is changing lives and changing climate policy. You probably know that celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Ruffalo, Jane Fonda, they've been lending their voice to the urgency for climate action for a long time. But in the last year or so, the voice of one teenager really has been carrying this conversation. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. The world is waking up. And change is coming, whether you like it or not. Greta Thunberg rose to prominence after she walked out of her school in Sweden to demand climate action. And she did that alone at first, but now she truly has ignited an international walkout movement. It's engaged millions of young people. Students around the world are skipping school today and taking to the streets to protest global warming. Demonstrations in Madrid, Tokyo, and Melbourne, Australia are being billed as a global day of action ahead of climate change meetings beginning in Madrid next month. Later on in the program, we're going to meet Marianel Ubaldo, who's been called the Greta Thunberg of the Philippines. We'll hear about her successes in raising awareness about climate change, but also about the struggles that she faces working in a place where activism is not often welcome. First, though, let's start in the United States where the Sunrise Movement has become an increasingly central and youth-led hub for climate activism. This group was founded in 2017, and it really gained national attention after it organized a 2019 sit-in in the office of the U.S. House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. And they did that to advocate for the Green New Deal. We're pleased to welcome Varshini Prakash, the co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement. Varshini, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So I'm wondering to start if you could tell us a little bit about the role of your generation and of young people in particular being at the forefront of climate activism, why that's so important. Well, a lot of this goes back to why we decided to create Sunrise in the first place. And a couple years ago, a number of friends of mine who were all throughout the climate movement who had gotten really activated in the Obama era. We were working on fossil fuel divestment campaigns, pushing our colleges and universities to stop investing in oil and gas corporations. We were fighting things like the Keystone XL pipeline alongside indigenous communities and rural communities. We were engaged in the international climate talks and saw the first glimpses of federal climate policy through things like the Clean Power Plan. And there was this real moment where we thought, you know, with a sympathetic president like Barack Obama, like we could make this happen. Mm -hmm. We could fundamentally shift the American economy on the path towards socioeconomic transformation to stop the climate crisis. And ultimately, that's not what happened. In 2015 and 2016, it became abundantly clear politicians were continuing to kick the can down the road on the issue of climate. We had not achieved the level of climate policies 
that we needed to sustain and protect future generations from the worst of climate chaos. And our movements weren't powerful enough to go toe to toe with the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And so I think there was this sense of failure and this sense of desperation that the climate crisis was worsening all around us, that we had grown up as the climate generation, witnessing things like Hurricane Katrina, seeing wildfires spreading all around us, watching drought and famine worsen and spread and seeing the calls for action from scientists and you know activists alike get more and more stark and more and more dire. And we realized we had to build a movement by and for young people that could really be a political vehicle to translate their fear and frustration into action and hope. I mean, you're essentially like training a new generation of climate activists in the United States and, and thought leaders. Um, yeah, that's the yeah. goal. <laughs> and I, you know, and that starts fairly young from my understanding. Um, like I'm wondering what that training looks like in practice. Our movement really came out of the scene publicly from a demonstration that we held at Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's office, where right after the Democrats had won back the House of Representatives, we knew that Democrats wouldn't make climate change a priority. And we knew that if we had one more lame duck to Congress on climate, and if this didn't become a national political priority immediately, we were totally screwed. Hmm. And so we with 200 Sunrisers, we showed up in Nancy Pelosi's office. We sat in, we were actually joined by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and collectively we catalyzed this moment around the Green New Deal that really pushed it into the public consciousness. And we demanded that politicians stop bickering about whether the climate crisis was happening or not and begin to talk about the solutions. Um, and the Green New Deal being the solution that was actually tackling the crisis at the scale of the crisis. Um, since that time, our movement has exploded, right? We have uh, gone from having just 20 local chapters to over 300 We in almost every single state in the country. So your grandparents live in, in India. Can you tell me a little bit about your family's own story and whether that drives uh, your activism in part? So um, my family is from the southern part of India. In my dad is from a place called Chennai. My mom is from a place called Bangalore. It is my second home. It's a place that lives deep within me. And I love it. I, I grew up with my dad telling me all these stories about like eating mangoes on the terrace of his house and waking up early to study before the sun got too hot and the smell of my grandma's cooking and playing out on the beach in front of his house with all these you know skinny little Indian boys and playing cricket and as I started growing older I think I began thinking about the climate crisis and environmental degradation that humanity was causing by looking at the impacts on places like India seeing the way that people were already fighting over water wars and access to clean water the ways in which farmers were committing suicides by the tens of thousands um, going into debts and unable to produce food, seeing the way that climate-fueled floods were devastating places and people who looked just like me but lived half a world away. And I think it made me think from a very young age, like, what kind of world are we creating where basic necessities like food and water are not met for all world? 
Um, and that was a big reason why I think I got involved in the climate crisis, because sitting half a world away, I was seeing the way that my government was inhibiting international climate negotiations, seeing the way that fossil fuel companies based in the United States have been hampering progress in the United States for years. And so I think for me, why I fight so hard in the United States is because it feels in some small way like I'm doing my part for my people back home, for my cousins and uncles who are struggling to breathe in, in pollution-ridden zones in India, for the fisher people and the communities that were drowned in recent monsoon seasons. Um, I think it's just my way of being able to do my part. You know, I mean, you, you put your finger on such an important point, which is the truly global nature of this crisis? Like in, in terms of the youth activist movement, how global is that? Do you coordinate with, um, you know, young people in other parts of the world who are also really standing up and saying the fossil fuel era really has to come to a close? Absolutely. The global strike movement has been one of the most inspiring things I have seen over the last year, in large part led by leaders like Greta Thunberg, we have seen millions of young people. In fact, most recently on September 20th, over 7 million young people on virtually every continent in the wow. world strike from schools, from businesses, from colleges and universities to say, we demand that our adults act like adults. <laughs> and right now our politicians are asleep at the wheel. They are leaving us to a future of irrevocable harm. And we need them to do something right now because we have let this problem get bad for too long. And this is not one of those issues where we have time, right? We are the first generation to feel the impacts of the climate crisis. We will be the last to be able to do something significant about it. And I think when we shoulder that burden individually and, and on our own, it becomes incredibly difficult and weighty and depressing. But when we're able to shoulder it collectively, much more becomes possible. And that's ultimately where I find my hope. So wondering what you make of Greta Thunberg's role in this sort of moment of young people in their standing up. I think she has done a tremendous, almost <laughs> unfathomable amount to mobilize millions of young people to believe that they can have a voice, right? She is this young activist with Asperger's syndrome who has crushed all barriers of what it looks like to be a leader in this moment. And I think what we need right now is for people to feel like they're not just watching Greta Thunberg or they can't be Greta Thunberg, but they are the leaders that they are waiting for. And ultimately, you know, we saw this happen where I, I think what people are being inspired by for the first time is seeing other youth activists calling for the full scale of the solutions that we need, not just piecemeal watered down milk toast solutions put forward by DC insiders, but the whole scale mobilization that we will need. Mm. And I've noticed that with young people in particular, we are not interested in talking about anything less than what is mandated by science and justice right now. And what, what um, is that? What this looks like is moving to an 100% renewable energy economy, ensuring that there is a 
just and fair transition for anybody working in the oil and gas sector or sectors that will be displaced in the process of moving to that renewable energy economy. I think it looks like guaranteeing the right to clean air and clean water for all Americans and people around the world. Right now, there are over 3,000 communities with as bad water quality as those in Flint, Michigan. Um, I think it's nothing less than a full Green New Deal. And what I mean by that is a whole-scale mobilization of our economy and its entire resources to transform virtually every part of our society over the next few decades to stop climate change and build economic prosperity. Um, so it's it's become like sort of a, um, a talking point lately and, and an important one, I think, um, to say that the climate crisis is not gender neutral. And, and I'm wondering if mm. you can um, sort of tell me a, a little bit about what that means um, for you and whether you agree with that statement. You know, I think with anything relating to social inequity, whether it's racism, whether it is wealth and income inequality, um, disparities in gender, whatever it might be, we currently live in an unfair system. And so if you consider the climate crisis, where the majority of people who are displaced by the climate crisis end up being women, um, the majority of people who also struggle to relocate, particularly across the global south, because of the climate crisis or climate-related disasters, are women. Um, people who often bear the brunt of violence that ensues in the aftermath of a disaster are women and children. Um, if we consider all of those disparities that exist already and, and understand that the climate crisis is only going to worsen them, then how could we afford to put forward solutions that only worsen those disparities. Um, and I think it's, it's true both in, in the worsening of the crisis, like if, we, if the crisis worsens, then conditions for women across the world, and particularly um, poor women, women of color, uh, indigenous women, worsens. Um, but it's also true in the solutions that we have an opportunity right now for women and people of color and poor people to be included in the solutions to this crisis rather than being left out of economic prosperity like they have at every turn in the history of this mm -hmm. nation. Yeah, I mean, there was a, um, a book that came out a couple years ago um, from Drawdown. I think Drawdown is also the name of the book um, that that ranked, you know, I think, a, the 100 top solutions to the climate, climate crisis in terms of, you know, how effective they are, um, which is like a really useful tool, I think. And I thought it was super interesting that I think two of the top 10 um, had to do with uh, like gender related issues. Like one, I think number six um, was educating women and girls. Um, and number seven was family planning. And that, you know, those are alongside things like, you know, installing more wind turbines or dealing with refrigeration differently, like sort of these very technocratic solutions. And, and I'm wondering, like, you know, from your perspective, uh, what you make of those those two solutions in in particular that like that education in these two different forms um, could be an important solution to the climate crisis could actually help reduce emissions. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And I think it just goes to show and this is true across so many different areas that when you give people the tools to have power and control over their own lives, they make decisions that are actually in the benefit of society at large. Mm. Oftentimes women are the people making choices about 
the way that they consume, whether um, the way that their families are organized and the, the kind of work that they do. And I think putting more power in women's hands is absolutely one of the most effective things that we could be doing to stop the climate crisis. What is like the single biggest hurdle to success for climate activists? If you're trying to get the world economy, um, you know, to be clean and to slow um, these devastating effects of warming, um, what is the main thing that you think stands in your way? We are extremely certain about the science on the climate crisis. We have the technology. Mm -hmm. We actually have the public will. That's the thing that oftentimes people don't realize is that a majority of Americans support action on climate. And I think the only thing remaining in this moment is to build the political will. And that's a daunting task. Um, we have barely the veneer of bipartisanship anymore, and even that is coming to a grinding halt. But at the same time, it makes the problem a little bit more manageable. And I think what we are realizing is we have got to build a movement so powerful that what feels like a political improbability or impossible in this moment becomes politically inevitable. People are often say to me, wow, political change is so hard. It's so impossible. Why do you think you can win? Like, what's so special about you? And I don't think there's anything special about me. I just think that I've put my mind to the idea that we cannot lose. Mm. And every single day of my life, I will continue to believe that. And when you believe that, things become possible that you never even imagined. And if every person I met felt that way too, we could move mountains. Varshini Prakash, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much, John. That was Varshini Prakash, the co-founder and executive director of the Sunrise Movement, a youth-led organization that advocates for political action on climate change. This is a conversation that's happening, of course, well beyond the borders of the United States. And in the Philippines, one of the most compelling new voices is that of a 22-year-old, Marionel Ubaldo. Reporter Avery Thompson recently caught up with her in Tacloban in the Philippines. Marionel Ubaldo started speaking out about climate change back in 2012, when she was 15, a year before the Philippines experienced its worst climate disaster in more than a century, Super Typhoon Haiyan. When Super Typhoon Haiyan happened, I actually experienced what I was telling them about. Typhoons would intensify and a lot of people would die. And tragically, that's just what happened. We are still learning just how bad the situation is in the Philippines, though it's now clear it's worse than we first knew. With winds reaching 196 miles per hour, the Category 5 storm was one of the strongest ever recorded. The storm swept through villages, and in the city of Tacloban, Home to a quarter million, more than 6,000 people lost their lives. When Super Typhoon Haiyan happened, and I have lost a lot of people I know, some of my family, relatives, some of my friends. I saw how my parents really strive hard to go back to our feet, and I just do not want that to happen again. I was 16 years old at that time and was about to graduate high school. You must have been scared. I was really scared. I, I haven't got to the point when I was um, questioning if it's worth it to go on. I didn't see the meaning of my life at that point because I said like um, we were in that situation because we were located on the coast where 
where we are prone to typhoons because we're in the typhoon belt. And I said, like, uh, just cannot accept that this could be our way of life. And then I realized that then I should turn that vulnerability into strength and I should really do something. I just cannot wait for another typhoon and kill my, all my family members. The Philippines averages 20 typhoons a year. So even though scientists cannot make a causal link between Haiyan and climate change, they can say that warming waters and rising sea levels have strengthened storms. In the face of these stark findings, Marinelle has intensified her efforts. She's participated in rallies, held protests, and is often quoted in the media, warning of climate change. And as her stature in the Filipino environmental movement increased, the world took notice. In 2015, Marinelle went to Paris to attend COP21, the UN's conference on climate change, but she had no clue that she would be one of its featured speakers. After my interview in Europe one, I think they're the number one radio station in, in France. Some person working for the president called the organization I was with, inviting me to speak at the conference. So at a time when other teenagers stress about speaking in front of their classmates, Marinel addressed a room of some of the most influential people in the world. Super typhoon high and devastating I was really nervous. I felt like I wasn't myself that time. I was like floating. And I was telling myself like my job is just to deliver the speech. Afterwards, I could just go out and eat and have coffee. <laughs> I found myself educating the public about the effects of climate change. Since her speech in Paris, Marinelle has become an internationally sought-after speaker. I have spoken in um, Korea, in Japan, in Paris, Germany, Spain, Italy, um, Amsterdam, Belgium. I forgot the others. <laughs> and at home, Marinel continues to be one of the Philippines' most visible activists. Last September, she protested outside of the Manila headquarters of Shell, a corporation she says has been actively spreading falsehoods about the dangers that come from burning fossil fuels. I was just... The only one there, they sent 10 people to just guard me there. You know how crazy it was. Like, I have realized how afraid these people are of just one person. And actually, the manager of the shell came down to their lobby and he wants me to go in. But I said, if you want to face me, if you want to face the people, then go out. Face me. At the end, they didn't face us. But with all this attention comes risk. In 2016, Rodrigo Duterte was elected president of the Philippines on a mandate to tackle corruption, protect indigenous people, and in what would seem like an alliance with activists like Marinel to protect the environment. But many within the Filipino environmental movement, as well as international onlookers, question the president's methods. Because our government is not really receptive to this kind of climate activism. And sadly, far too often, defending the environment in the Philippines can be fatal. Activists like Marinelle are on the front line of the climate justice movement. That's Rachel Cox, a campaigner for Global Witness, an international human rights watchdog group. In 2018, Global Witness ranked the Philippines as the deadliest country for environmental activists. 
Global Witnesses reporting shows that in the first three years of President Duterte's government, 113 land environmental defenders were killed. Do any of your friends or family warn you or tell you don't do this out of fear for your safety? They don't tell me don't do that. They always tell me to take care of yourself. Whatever you do, just take care. Please just be careful. Is Marinelle brave? Yes, she is. Very brave. These are two of Marinelle's friends, Marian Valdez and Ronan Napoto. Seeing how Marinelle and other environmental activists around the Philippines and even in the, in the global setup, like, fear is there, but the passion, the drive, the will to make a change is greater compared to distress. Talking to Marinelle's friends was also a reminder that while she is a rising star in the environmental movement, Marinelle Ubaldo is also a 22-year-old. She's not even a millennial. She's a Gen Zer, and one who, driven by her convictions, is forced to relive the day Hyan struck her village, the worst tragedy of her life. Retelling my story over and over again is sometimes stressful, you know, because nobody wants to remember the things that was horrible for them, especially if it includes losing loved ones. But then I'm telling myself, if I will not do this, then who will do it? So as long as I'm given the platform and the opportunity to speak, I would speak. While Marinelle is encouraged by all the attention she receives, she warns her audiences that being heard is not enough. I always tell them that I don't want to hear that you're just touched by my story. I want you to go home and tell my story to your family members and tell them that we should really do something and have an impact in our leaders, in our government. We have the power. We're the people. We can elect our leaders, and we can actually tell them what we should do. And there is reason to believe that Marinelle's voice and others like it are having an impact, says Rachel Cox. Individual activists, uh, communities of activists work together to raise awareness on the front lines, both of the climate justice movement, the land rights movement and the human rights movement. So these voices are absolutely crucial to ensure that this issue remains on the government's agenda and remains on the agenda of um, companies and investors who are both working in the Philippines now but looking to invest here in the future. After spending the day touring Tacloban with Marinelle, I joined her and her friends for dinner at their favorite local hangout. The conversation was light and friendly. There were embarrassing stories from college and some travel plans made. But the mood shifted when Marinelle asked us if she could open her mail at the table. She said she'd been too nervous to open it on her own. Then she pulled out an envelope bearing the seal of the Filipino president. Her friends looked concerned. We all went silent and watched her face as she read. After a few moments, Marinelle smiled. She told us the letter was acknowledging that the president's office received a handwritten letter from a woman in Belgium praising Marinelle's efforts and urging the Filipino government to support her. There was debate amongst the group whether being acknowledged by the president was good or bad. Marinelle gave a shrug. Being an activist in the Philippines remains a tricky balancing act for Marinelle, seeing her government as both a threat and an ally.
But in spite of the challenges, Marinel shows no signs of stopping. I don't have time to be afraid. <laughs> we always have to do something. Reporting from Tacloban, Philippines, I'm Avery Thompson. A bit of housekeeping before we wrap up. We want to mention that since Global Witness put out that report last July, the Filipino government responded saying that their report was, quote, generalizing, and that more investigations would be needed to understand why so many activists had been killed in the Philippines. Next week on Heat of the Moment, climate change is forcing people from their homes, especially in island nations. How can the world change its policy toward climate migrants? And what can be done to assist those who don't want to leave, but would rather stay in place and thrive? Dominica, for example, after Hurricane Maria, pledged to become the first climate-resilient nation in the world and, and is doing things like switching to solar power and burying utility cables and trying to switch building codes to make the country more resilient to the impacts of climate change so that people are not displaced by every Category 5 hurricane that comes through. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the climate investment funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.